if you're not feeling any kind of inferiority or imposter syndrome, you're probably not doing anything interesting. You're not pushing yourself. You're resting on your laurels or you're treading water. You don't have to do something that scares you every day, but you should be pushing yourself out of your comfort zone because staying in your comfort zone is not safe from a from a survival standpoint, which is evolutionarily a new thing. It used to be that staying in the crowd was the safe thing and and stepping away from the crowd was the dangerous thing, but that's not the case anymore. So if you're not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, if you're not feeling some imposter syndrome, you're not taking any risks. And if you don't take any risks, you're not going to get any reward. You're listening to Under the Current, a podcast that tells the real stories behind the life and work of creative people who come at things in unconventional ways. In each episode, we go below the surface to better understand the highs, lows, and messy middles that are part of the journey. My name's Howard Gray, and I'm your host. When you're taking the road less traveled in an independent career, there's all kinds of tension along the way. Building an audience, figuring out how to market yourself, choosing what to work on, and knowing how and what to charge for what you do. The default setting for this last point is typically to set an hourly rate. Makes sense, right? Jonathan Stark thinks otherwise. He's on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing and helps freelancers, consultants and creatives of all flavours find better ways to do the work they want to do in the world. Jonathan's own journey has gone from live musician to digital agencies, independent software developer to teacher and coach. While his books, talks, and daily newsletter are now hugely successful, there have, however, been a few bumps along the way. In this conversation, we get into why artists and designers can be very opposite, the real value of music, unexpected occurrences of the employee mentality, and why marketing can make us kind of mad. It's time to go under the current with Jonathan Stark. Jonathan, welcome along. It's really great to have you. I'm really excited to get into this. We're going to be covering art, creativity, business, marketing, and hopefully a lot more besides. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So I wanted to start somewhere which maybe seemed a little bit tenuous, but I think we can we can bring it somewhere quite interesting. I wanted to start with music and mm-hmm. standing on the stage as a musician. Can you talk about standing on the stage as a musician in your career and kind of how that's shaped what you do now. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm 52 now, but when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and pretty much until I was early 30s, I was a pretty serious musician. Went to Berkeley College of Music, graduated, top of my class, wanted to, you know, be a rock star. I'm a child of the 80s, so MTV was like, you know, everything. And I just wanted to be famous and I loved playing guitar. So I was like, oh, I guess I'll, you know, when, when it was time to pick a college, it was like, well, I don't really like anything more, not even close. I don't like anything even close to as much as I like the physical nature of playing the guitar. I hadn't performed or anything. I just loved playing guitar. So I was like, yeah, you know, I'll go to college for music. I ended up at Berkeley and and anyway, that was a serious thing for me. I 
after I graduated, I was in a local band for a while. The band eventually broke up after a few years, and I did the solo singer-songwriter thing, which would have been around mid-90s, I guess. So it was like when John Mayer and Dave Matthews, around the time that they were becoming more well-known, and I kind of fit into that category at the time. And anyway, looking at, eventually I, I went on to other things that I'm sure we're going to talk about, but around my 30s that ended, and when I look back on it from you know, 20, 30 years later, I see that my motivations were all wrong. I didn't, I honestly didn't care about the audience, which is so weird to say, but I, I just cared about me. I was only thinking about myself, you know, like, did I, did I nail that solo? Do I look cool on stage? It was all very self-centered. And, and so it's no wonder looking back on it that I didn't, Ever, it never caught on because I, why would it? I was never connecting with anyone because I wasn't even trying. It didn't even occur to me, weirdly, it didn't even occur to me to try to make the audience feel something or dance or cry or move or feel connected or anything. It never it didn't even cross my mind. So, so it's no wonder that that didn't work out. And that, to answer your question, I suppose, is that informs everything I do now where the stuff I do now is all about the audience and, and is very little, it's like, I, I could care less if I was delivering it. You know, it's like, I want this, I want, you know, my, my current mission, I want to spread. And if, if it's me that has to do it, great. If other people help me with it, that's even better. And if, if I don't have to do it anymore, that's the best. So kind of take myself out of the center of that universe. And having had the experience of, sort of being on stage in front of a thousand people or, you know, I wish a thousand, probably more like a couple hundred at, at my top and, and thinking about just myself and like staring down at my fingers instead of looking up at the crowd and trying to bring them into something, take them on a, on a journey. That, that is my, that is a very educational, tactile experience for me. So now I, you know, I don't know, it's just changed the way. I view what I'm doing now. Was there like a separation there? It sounds like you'd separated yourself from the audience and like your your creative work and your craft then was like very separated from the people you were standing in front of. Yeah, so I was, I was my, my whole idea around the way music was, was kind of like split into three things. It was, I was, I was, I, I never picked one of the three things. It was kind of like, Sometimes I would act like an artist and like, I don't care if anyone likes it. It's what I, it's my art, you know, but then other times I'd want to be a business person. And like, I need to put Cheerios in the bowl. Like people need to come to these shows and they need to pay me, you know? So it was kind of like, it was kind of like on the one hand, I was acting like an artist when it was convenient for me. And on the other hand, I was trying to act like, like a business owner or an entrepreneur or the manager kind of when it was convenient for me. And I just, and then the performing thing was somewhere in the middle where I did, I didn't mind being on stage. I, I didn't, I mean, it, I don't have, I got to a point where I, I mean, I suppose I must've had stage fright at some point, but the performing aspect, I kind of like, I did like, I did like that. And toward the end of when I was sort of tailing out of it, I, f I found a, a way to, bring the audience on stage, which had I 
maybe pursued that, it was something interesting because it was actually fun for the audience and it was fun for me. So it was kind of like these, these, the artist, the performer and the entrepreneur kind of, I never really picked one and then kind of outsourced the other one to someone else. So I could have, I can imagine if I was going to get back into music that I could, I could literally go hard into any one of those things and outsource the other stuff. And it'd probably be more successful as long as I did. Well, unless I picked artists, in which case I would just be a total artist and not really worry about the audience. But in general, I should probably have thought about the audience more and picked a role to really be good at instead of being kind of crappy at all three. So I feel like there's like two or three ways we can go out of the back of that. I think one that comes to mind first is the differences between being an artist and a designer. And you said before, like maybe the artist can almost be the opposite of being a designer. I wanted to talk about the kind of performer and business person bits as well in a bit, but I'd love to start mm -hmm. there of why, why being an artist actually maybe the opposite of being say a designer, for example. Yeah. So this is probably going to make somebody mad, but if you bear with me, I think the people, I, I talk to a lot of designers and a lot of them have a tendency to act like artists and what designers do is incredibly creative, but they're not, I wouldn't call them artists. I think an artist, you know, if we're, if we're talking like extremes and archetypes, I think an artist is someone who pisses people off, makes them think about things they don't want to think about, breaks new ground, breaks through norms that are outdated. They're more of a more iconoclastic, you know, in, in the, the most extreme case, like the most extreme version of an artist. They're doing something completely new. They, I think they're probably not thinking about the art. It's more in general. I, this, I, it could be, you could argue this, but I think they're a little bit more on an inner journey where a designer is the opposite of that. They are, you know, and I don't mean someone who makes pretty pictures and, you know, like, like decoration. I'm not talking about that kind of designer. I'm talking about a designer who solves problems. They create solutions. And inherent in that concept is that somebody has a problem and they're, they're solving it. So they're not trying to piss people off. They're trying to do the opposite. They're trying to make somebody happier. And not that an artist can't make someone happier, but it's a completely different approach. And, and I think a lot of designers, well, well, no, but what I do is really creative. So I'm an artist. I'm like, well, lots of things are really creative. It doesn't make you an artist. I don't think creativity is the, I don't think if you're a creative person, you're automatically an artist. I feel like that's kind of obvious when you say it out loud. So I feel like a designer who wants to act like an artist, but expects to be paid by, you know, like, oh, well, I'm worth, my time's worth money or what I do is really valuable. It's, that's, it's like me when I was trying to be a prima donna, but at the same time I wanted to, you know, get paid. So I, f I feel like a lot of designers I talk to are in that mode where they're like, they want to act like an artist and kind of like not let the client tell them direct them in any way, but uh, at the same time, they want a lot of money from the client because they think it's so valuable. So I, I just think that that's a problem, you know, and if you kind of pick one of those things, it actually make your career a lot easier because then you could, you're not like pulling yourself in two directions. Do you think people get tangled up between those two things or tangle the two together a lot? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it kind of leads me to thinking about delineating or separating out like the art and the business bit or the hobby, the job, the business, all, all of these kind of things feel tangled. And so 
what what's your take on how people can think about this more clearly when it comes to like which one's the art which one's the creative business which thing could be the hobby which thing's the job what's your advice for someone trying to untangle these two things how do you sit with both the art and the creative if you're trying if you want to be both you want to be a creative person <laughs> but you have something that you feel is an is art that you want to put out there pick <laughs> decide what you want to be when you grow up so but to to be a little bit more gentle about it the you, you can do both but not i don't feel like it's a successful approach to try to blend them so so it's kind of like it's, in the music world it's kind of like oh well i'm going to make money on the weekends in a wedding band like gb band but during the day i'm going you know the rest of the week i'm going to be bjork i don't i don't like it's not impossible i know a lot of people kind of like you know, paid the bills doing gigs that they feel are beneath them, let's say, to fund their art. But in my experience, obviously there's going to be exceptions to this, but to me it feels like a, I'd rather have a cleaner separation where during the day I worked at the post office, so I didn't have to think about it at all, but that was a kind of a dig on, on the post office. But you know what I mean, like a job where there are clear rules, like Get a job where there's clear rules during the day that pays well, benefits, uh, so you're you're not worried about survival. And then at night, let's say, or on the weekends, do your art. And don't try and make your art pay the bills. As soon as you're trying to as soon as you're trying to make your art pay your bills, you're kind of you're making it harder for you to make art, I think. I think, you know, like this is obviously all my opinion, but looking back on it that failure to make a decision and make a split between your survival income and your art it's a scary thing like that to me that is just a recipe for disappointment ideally your art would take off and you would be able to continue doing what you want to do and it would then fund itself but i think trying to start that too early is I mean, I just have, a, I can't think of an example where it worked out of anybody I know. It's always the opposite where, you know, they, they start doing, you know, they do like getting a wedding band and then, you know, they're 50 and they're still in the wedding band. So, and they never got around to doing their art. So I suppose if you're an extremely disciplined person, you don't have a lot of other things going on, you can have these two lives. But yeah, I would try and separate them as much as possible. If you were going to do that, I would try and separate them as much as possible. So the day thing didn't take any of your, or the, the, the paying the bills thing, take the minimum amount of creative energy so that you were like, like a, like a, like a lion ready to jump out of a cage when it, you know, you get into the studio and you're just like, you're just like all of your creative energy is kind of bottled up and is like ready to come out. So I think that's a really good point because I think it seems to make sense that why wouldn't I do a creative or art thing as my job? But like you said, it depletes the energy that you do have if you're doing that 40, 50 hours a week, Monday to Friday, by the time it gets around to Saturday or Thursday night, whatever it is, you're too drained and you can't, and it doesn't become fun anymore. I wanted to get to a phrase which I've heard you use before, which I really like, which I think you sort of touched on a little bit there, which is funding the mission. Can, yeah. can you talk a bit about what you see that that phrase to, to mean for you funding the mission right a lot of people are chasing the dollar so you know if they're 
whether they've got a side hustle or they're self-employed, you know, freelancer or a consultant or a coach or whatever, they're, maybe they run a small design firm or a development shop. Their goals are kind of like make a million dollars. The goals are all financial and that's fine, but it doesn't give you any direction. Like, are you going to open a chain of laundromats or are you going to be a rock star or, or be a, uh, try and be a best-selling author? It's just, it's like looking at the side effect and focusing on the side effect and just imagining that the, the other stuff's going to figure itself out somehow, like the power of positive thinking. I'm going to be rich when I'm 30. It doesn't, it doesn't give you any direction. So you get paralyzed and you just like trying random stuff. You have, you have no strategy, so you don't know what to do. And you just end up going in circles and not getting anywhere. So instead of thinking about the money, you think about a mission, an objective. For me, the my favorite kinds of missions are ones that include the audience or are for the audience, because that will that will keep pulling you back. Like that that energy of the audience. And when I say audience, I mean the people who are paying attention to your mission or paying attention to what you're saying or playing or doing. If if you're in it for them, the exact opposite of like the way I was as a musician. If you're in it for them. It's going to give you a lot. It's just going to pull you forward. It's going to, it's going to have this magnetic thing that's going to cause you to come back every day and want to do more, do more, do more, do more. You don't have to push yourself to do it. It, it pulls you along. It's like a, it's like a mag, um, it's like a magnetic force, but in order to keep coming back every day to chip away at that mission and take one more step, one more step, one more step, you've got to eat. You got to keep the lights on. You have to, keep, you know, all the, the, the bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you need to take care of all that stuff. So you have to somehow fund the mission so you can stay on the mission. So you can come back every day and, and keep playing or writing or, or entertaining or whatever you do. So if you think about it, if you think about it mission first, and then you worry about the side effect, which is people paying you for the value that you're putting into the world. So capturing back some of the value you're creating so you can keep coming back and create this virtuous cycle that gives you way more direction. Now you've got a, an outcome, a destination, if you will, that you could, well, if I'm trying to get, if I'm in New York, I'm trying to get to LA, start walking West. Like I've got a direction, but if I just want to make a million dollars or I just want to go to a city, that's my goal. Well, I don't know which direction to face when I start. So it makes it really hard to know what to do. If your goal is to make a million dollars, it's like, eh, all right, well, what are you going to do? Start up rock star, famous author, you're still left with the same, you haven't made a decision, really. You've just set an arbitrary goal for yourself with no realistic way to get there. What what else do people get wrong about goals? I think the thing about, yeah, you want to go to LA and you're in New York, start walking mm -hmm. west. That's a, better, that's a better way to take it than I want to make a million dollars. What else do you see people kind of get wrong when it comes to goal setting? I th so I think that they focus on the, like it, you need to set the goal. You need to set at least a direction, some kind of vision, some kind of destination you need to have. I think it's more effective. It's a more effective use of your life and your minutes of your life that are not coming back to have some kind of goal for yourself. But then once you've set it and you've decided on a strategy to reach it, and you've come up with this sort of list of tactics, like put one foot in front of the other, then at, at that point, forget about the goal and focus on the, the process, the system, the day-to-day, -day, 
and it needs to be something that it would ideally it's something that you enjoy like that you you create a process that probably is going to lead to where you want to go you create this process or system or plan and then and and you make it a system or plan or or process that you enjoy doing so somehow make the the walking enjoyable figure that out figure out how to make the walking enjoyable and if you do it every day pretty soon you're going to look up and be like whoa i am way closer to la than i thought but then look back down and enjoy the process enjoy the process so i i think it's important to set a goal but to focus on the goal i don't find certainly not for me and for most people i I work with i don't think it's a great motivator so if every day you have to get up and like it just turns into a slog and your brain starts doing that thing. Like when you're running, I don't know if you ever run a marathon, but your brain starts doing this thing where you're talking yourself out of it in the middle where you're like, what was I thinking? This is terrible. What was I even hoping to get out of this? Am I just trying to impress people? This is not worth it. You know, and you're, you get in a fight with yourself and it almost becomes, that's almost the bigger problem than the physical tiredness and pain it's the it's the the that inner kind of debate with yourself in the middle of it i feel like that's what happens if you don't enjoy the process and you're just focused on the goal it's going to be i I just feel like that's like a a recipe for failure something Mm. you mentioned last time we spoke i thought was really interesting was your thoughts on the on the value of music Mm. and who would sort of suffer if it went away which is maybe sounds like a sort of controversial topic there's someone who's spend a lot of time in music and now spends a lot of time around positioning, pricing and value. How do you see like the value of music? How do you think about that? It's a big topic because there's like commercial music and jingles and, and like, you know, you've got music at the beginning of your show, right? Like what's that worth? (laughs) How much would you pay to keep that? What if it, you didn't have, would you pay $10,000 to have music at the beginning of your show? I doubt it. You know, if, if music disappeared, what would that do to the, you know, the value of this podcast? Would that be worth $10,000 to have a, you know, cool little, you know, pad at the beginning? I doubt it. Definitely not a million. Right. So like, well, there's, there is a number that you would pay to have music at the beginning of this show in the intro, but it's not a million dollars. There is. I actually, I actually was talking about licensing something from a public, from a label and a publisher before I started recording this first season. And it became such a headache and such a drawn out process and a price above what I thought it was worth that I just decided to not use it and went with library options instead. So yeah, yeah. exactly that. I went, I went through that, that exact yeah, and you experience. spent 50 bucks maybe, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is there some value in a commercial sense? Yes. Is it, is it, generally high not really not compared to how long it takes somebody to get good enough to create 30 seconds of music that's worth buying Mm -hmm. so you know it might take you 20 10 or 20 years to be to be to be able to make something that's worth paying 50 bucks for 30 seconds so that's commercial music then there's like the value of like music performance which to me is almost the music is almost incidental it's more like a group experience and there's some music there but if the music is triggering memories, say like Bruce, Bruce Springsteen or the Stones, they've got this huge catalog. And when people go to their shows, what they're really paying for is to remember what it was like. It's like a nostalgia play. 
I don't think anybody's going to a Stones show to like rock out. You know, I'm sure I'm sure like like boomers bring their kids and stuff, but I don't feel like the Stones are making new fans really. You know, and so so a boomer is. I hope that's not a pejorative term. Like my parents are boomers. I think they're fine with it. The the what they're paying for is to regain their youth in some small way. So they'll pay 200 bucks for that all day long. I'd pay 200 bucks to, to, you know, regain that youthful, like innocence all day. It's a great value proposition. Regain great your value youthful proposition. Energy. Yeah, it is. All you have to do is be a cultural phenomenon in your twenties so that when you're in your fifties and sixties, you can trigger that, 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 that impulse. And, you know, what about somebody like Woody Guthrie? You know, like what's the value of this land is our land. This land is your land. I mean, like, how do you, it's, it's so diffuse, you know, because it, it has, it's not going to have like high value to one individual. It's diffused across an entire culture. So how do you value it? What would be lost if it was gone? What, what would be lost if ballet disappeared? I don't know. Nothing as far as I'm concerned. And my cousin's a ballet, you know, so I, so apologies, but I just don't care. Calligraphy don't care. I'm sure there's tons of people who don't care about music. So to them, it's not worth anything, but this, Situations are also different that, you know, and then let's throw technology in. So like, let's say this is really out there, but let's say in the future, if, if we consider, if we consider music, a, a method of communication that transmits things that words can't emotions, more direct connection to the emotions that the, the performer is trying to, or the artist is trying to, to communicate and and get across like so i've got an emotion i write a song about it and i want to trigger that emotion in the audience right if it's a, if it's a form of communication what happens if if you know neuralink from elon musk starts to work and we can have nonverbal direct communication with somebody else's brain or an audience's brain what would be the point of music like it would it need to exist would you know all sort like it can get super weird if you think about it hard enough or here's here's another example here's a probably even easier example for people to swallow what would happen if sheet music disappeared would you care like your list dear listener would you care if sheet music disappeared it's a terrible encoding method there's a better way now it's called recordings <laughs> and recordings are essentially free so why would you care about having sheet music? Almost nobody probably cares about sheet music. Like on planet Earth, seven plus billion people, how many people care about sheet music? Almost nobody. Historians, maybe. Because it's a bad encoding. So why would you spend your entire life learning how to play guitar and write songs to use as a form of communication to trigger emotions in other people if there's an easier way to do it? Which I think is why we're we're seeing... You know, you don't, I just don't see, I mean, even compared to the nineties, there are like no rock bands. Like there's like, if, when, if I think of like a big rock band, it's hard to think of them. It's almost like that's kind of over because at, and I feel like, stop me if you're sick, getting sick of this, but I feel like as radio, terrestrial radio kind of, kind of became marginalized and the internet came up, why would I go through all of the trouble to get my song onto terrestrial radio and all of the, all of the stuff that I would have to do in the nineties, which younger people probably don't even know about, but it was like a nightmare of gatekeepers 
trying to first hone your craft, then get a recording done somehow that was expensive, and then somehow convince an A&R guy or a DJ to get that on the radio or get a record company to sign you. It was like gatekeepers on top of gatekeepers on top of gatekeepers just to get your voice into the mass market. And now anybody with an iPhone can get their voice into the mass market. So why go through that whole chain of command when you can just live stream on YouTube and get your message across? So I think for an entire class of musicians who who had a message, just sort of more political artists who had a message and were trying to change the world and and all that, it's like, well, now they're now they're YouTubers. Why would they learn how to play guitar? It's it's hard to learn how to play guitar. Let's let's just I'll just talk directly to the unit, like the world. <laughs> so I, I obviously I'm jumping all over the place, but the I think about it a lot. I have no good answers, no good answers. It's it's to me. I'll, I'll leave you with this. I think the clearly the highest value music is in movies. Like I think movies as an art form are still strong. And I think if you take music out of movies, they're not movies anymore. Like if you, if you turn off the mm. sound of like Harry Potter or, or if you ever see one of those behind the scenes things where, where they show the filming of the scene, but the music hasn't been put in yet, they're awful. I mean, they're it's the, somehow it breaks the, it breaks the illusion and it's just like four people like acting goofy in front of a camera on a soundstage. Like the music creates the mood. And without that, movies kind of collapse, in my opinion. A certain kind of movie, at least. So to me, that is the most obvious high value music application, if you will. And, and it's pretty artsy, I think. Like from an artist standpoint, I feel like John Williams, for example, has a lot of latitude with what he, what he would want to do. So... To me, that to me that would be like for you know if if my son decides to become some kind of like musician or recording artist or like a music professional, I'd be like movies, go do movies. So I think there's a couple of interesting things in there. A lot of things that jumped out to me. Was, I hope so. There was a lot. <laughs> well, so I, I spent eight nine years working in music on the business side, and during that time, and even more so now, I've seen lots of musicians seeking out scoring opportunities to go and do TV and film kind of work. Right now I'm watching Gamora, which is an Italian kind of gangster series about the Neapolitan mafia. And the music in there's very simple. Like it's, there's, only, there's only about five or six pieces that are used. There's one, one producer that does all of it. But without that music, it would the show would be 30, 40% worse than it is. Like it's hard to even imagine it without. Like all, all, a lot of the suspense and tension of a show like that comes from that music. So I 100% agree. And whether it's that or Harry Potter or something else, you can see in TV and film, music is crucial. And I think where, maybe where you're getting to is, the, and I wanted to ask you about how does someone in the discipline of music or ballet or whatever, calligraphy, or whatever it is, how do you deal with this when the value is tricky? And I suppose it gets to the value proposition, which I'd love mm. to get your take on, and also maybe multiple mediums as well, which maybe leads us into talking about maybe some of your current work, like working in working in multiple spaces. Now, rather than just being a performer, you can be scoring artists as well or instead of. And so, yeah, I feel like maybe where you were getting to was how do you deal with this if you feel that like the, the value of what you're doing in your creative work is possibly being eroded away by technology and other things? Mm. I guess it gets to finding a value proposition and finding the places and mediums where it is valued. Like for music, it would be in film. 
for example. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just one example. But if, if, if you come back to funding the mission, it, it starts with deciding the mission. So if you decide, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're like, you know, I'm just a cynical failed artist, which is totally fine way to read it. And you're like, you know, Stark's wrong, then great. That's yeah. Prove me wrong, please. I would love it. That's fine. I'm just sort of like, you know, this is like a blanket opinions here uh, based on my personal experience. I think the, the straightest, clearest path to success as let's say a musician is to like decide what the mission is. Why, what's your purpose? Why are you getting out of bed every day and going over the keyboard? Is it just because you like the physical nature of it and you enjoy the sense of mastery? If so, I think you're going to be like me in your twenties, where in my twenties, when I was just kind of like, oh, this is fun. People should pay me for it because it was hard to learn. And, and instead decide what you're trying to do, what action or emotion or, or behavior are you trying to create in the world? What cultural impact are you going for? What is the mission? that underlies your dedication to this craft. And if you can do that and it's clear to you what it is, then if you come up with like a, a strategy to achieve it, and then, then once you do that, then the tactics will be obvious. And, and then you have to figure out a way to fund the mission so that you can, you know, come back every day and take another step toward the goal. And if, if that means working at the post office during the day, so be it. If it means putting some stuff on pond five and that's enough, then so be it. Or if it means, I don't know, interning somewhere for really low pay then so be it like hustle, fine hustle, but don't, don't see the goal. Isn't like to be famous or to have a million dollars or, you know, a private jet. The goal is to achieve the mission and almost certainly the mission is going to include the audience some transformation in the audience and then figure out how to fund it so that you can come back every day and keep doing it. Uh, that would be my approach. Like I would say like, okay, you know what I mean? Like at the most idealistic level, that would be what I would say to do. So you could, I mean, you can certainly make a living doing music. It's, it's, it's easier now than ever, in fact, but you know, making a million dollars, that's I think a little bit more unlikely. So whether we're talking about music or ballet or calligraphy, to me, that's the approach. Like, like what is what is the transformation you're trying to create in the the audience like are you supposed to do you like you want your calligraphy to be so beautiful that people cry when they see it or what like what are you doing for the audience and and then figure out a way to that that will be valuable to the audience and figure out a way to get back a little bit of that value or enough of that value so that you can keep coming back every day to do it again so I know that's pretty high level and abstract, but that's the way I see it. And if we, if we, if I was talking to a specific person, I would be able to drill into it more because they would answer specific questions about what that mission might be. Therefore I could say, well, what about this as a strategy? And if they said yes, then it's like, well, then the tactics become obvious. So if someone who's going out, maybe they've got a few steps down the road to sort of extend our metaphor a bit and they're becoming an, an owner of some kind. You mentioned that term employee mentality. Yeah. Can you, can you expand a bit on that as it, you know, as it relates to when you're becoming an owner of either of your own creative work or of a bigger business that you're building around yourself? How, do, how does that employee mentality sort of show up and where have you seen it being problematic? 
Yeah, I see it all the time. So, so here's the classic case is that somebody has a job. Let's, let's say, I'll just use myself as an example. So I was working at Staples, the you know, office superstore at their headquarters in the internal advertising agent department. It was like an internal agency. And I built workgroup software so with FileMaker in there. So, so at some point, I became dissatisfied with that and wanted to do more. I wanted to make more and I felt undervalued. So whatever. So, so here's person in job that has acquired this skill. They become dissatisfied and they go, oh, I'm going to go out on my own and uh, charge a hundred bucks an hour. You know, you look around and you see, oh, what are other FileMakers, FileMaker developers make? Oh, a hundred bucks an hour, 125 bucks an hour. All right. So I'm going to go out on my own and freelance and make, uh, I'm going to day one start making a hundred bucks an hour which is you know and you like two times two thousand hours is going to be three times more than my salary or something like that and lo and behold you quit your job and you you think okay now i'm going to freelance or i'm going to be a contractor and what you don't realize when you have this employee mentality is that you just started a business. You're not a FileMaker developer anymore. Now you're an entrepreneur or a business owner or business person, whatever you want to call it. Your, your new craft that you need to learn is entrepreneurship. And there are lots of things that go into entrepreneurship that have nothing to do with whatever your craft is, whether it's FileMaker development or illustration or professional photography. So all of the employee mentality keeps you locked in an unprofitable feast famine hamster wheel of desperately scrambling to find somebody who needs a part essentially a part-time employee that does what you do and and then you get slammed with work as they've got this project that you're executing and the whole time you're spending all of your time and energy the whole the whole time through the project you're spending all of your time and energy on the client work and you're not doing any of the craft of of entrepreneurship. You're not doing any marketing. You're not doing any innovation. You hate the idea of doing sales. You don't want to do anything that has to do with running a successful business. You just want to do FileMaker. You just want to do illustration. And you feel that, that the clients owe you something. I talked about this already. It's like they owe you for the time you put in. And you're not thinking as much about delivering something to them that's of value. You don't even think about it like that. It's like me in my 20s on stage. You're just thinking about doing your craft as well as you possibly can. And and then it's like, and then magic happens and someone gives me money for it. So that the, to me, the employee mentality is the opposite of an entrepreneur mentality or business person mentality where you are dealing with your clients on a peer level and not a subservient level where you agree to let them tell you what to do. You know, you, you enter into the relationship in a sort of boss employee kind of way where they tell you what to do and you'll get disgruntled because they tell you the wrong thing to do, but they're the client. So you have to do it. And then, uh, you don't deliver any real value because you're letting someone who doesn't understand your craft drive the project. So you're not taking control and then they get no value out of it, but you expect to be paid anyway because you let them control a situation that as the professional, you probably should have pushed back and said, no, you're actually telling me to do something that's not going to work. So, you know, be like going to the doctor and telling the doctor how to treat you. It doesn't make sense. 
So the employee mentality keeps you locked in this hamster wheel of this feast famine cycle where you're just slammed with work for three months and then you're dead for three months and it just keeps happening. So yeah, so that's really bad. <laughs> did you did you find times that you were sitting in that that kind of three month three month we were on on the wheel off it again? I dodged it because when I I didn't go straight from corporate to uh, solo. I went from corporate to a firm, and I got so I had my eyes opened. I my employee mentality. I'll tell you. I can tell you exactly what broke my employee mentality. So I went to the firm and I was still a developer, you know, just sort of like a junior developer getting billed out at $150 an hour, which if you looked at my, you know, and maybe I was making 50 of that if you, so my time was way marked up and it's easy as a, as a noob, you know, like someone who's just blind to the other things that the business is, is doing, you know, like marketing, sales, promotion, innovation, what customer development, all that stuff that is invisible to me. Cause I just, you know, I show up on Monday, there's work on my desk. I do a, a job. I impress myself with how awesome I am. And then I, you know, get angry that the boss is keeping a hundred out of the $150. Right. So that that's so, sort of how it started. And then as you, as I rose up, I eventually in a couple of years, I ended up being the VP. So it was just like the boss and then me and then like 10 or 15 developers. And so I used to have to do one-on-ones with them. And that was what snapped me. I was, that snapped me out of the employee mindset because I was now privy to all of the other stuff that the boss had been doing, you know, like writing a book. If he didn't write a book, we wouldn't have clients. Or if he didn't write a, a monthly column in the trade journal, we wouldn't have clients. But since he did all of that stuff, I, I call it like I equate it to gardening. So he was out there gardening all the time. And then when the seeds you know, sprouted and the tomatoes started coming up, we were like little, you know, the employees were like little kids like, oh, well, there's just always tomatoes instead of like recognizing that someone had to like prepare the ground, plant the seeds, tend to them daily. And now they, you know, it was work to make those tomatoes grow and and when I would get into one-on-ones with people, they would have the same kind of attitude I had when I first started, which is like, I'm getting the bad end of this deal because I'm doing everything as the technician, as the person on the front lines and, and the managers are doing nothing. They're just sitting around cashing checks. And it's that, that, that moment in my life was, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Now I get it. Cause I had this higher level view and I could see, you know, you know, if you have one-on-ones with 10 employees, like in a week, it, it, it will break your employee mentality. You're like, Oh wow. Okay. So if you want to break your employee mentality, that's a good, that's a good yeah. tip. Get some employees. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I wanted to switch from gardening to another, another kind of outdoor pursuit, maybe Disneyland. Okay. Can, can you, can you talk a bit about Disneyland and the impact Disneyland had on you? Yes. So there's a quote from Peter Drucker, who was like, I guess he was sort of active in the 60s and 70s. And he was like, like a legendary management consultant, legend. And it's one of those, one of those people who, who, like, I would agree with a lot of the things, the quotes that I would hear or whatever, but sometimes I'd be like, 
taken back and think like, oh, well, maybe that made sense in the 70s or maybe that only makes sense in like big manufacturing companies where they're trying to do like scientific management. But there was one, you know, but he seemed really smart. I really liked most of the things that I heard him say. But there was one thing that really, you know, really made me think, it like made me pause. So it was like something seems right about this, but I can't accept it. So and, it, and it's his his quote about the purpose of a business. And I actually just I have a daily mailing list and I actually sent this question out to the whole list and said, what is the purpose of a business? Not your business, but business in general. What is the purpose of a business? And I got back 150 answers and they were they fell into a few different categories. The most popular category was the purpose of a business is to make a profit for the owner of the business. And. And that is what I would have said two years ago, probably three years, no, more longer than that now. But when I first read the quote, that's what I would have said. But the quote is, the purpose of a business is to create and keep a customer. And I was like, create a customer? No, it, he means find a customer, right? And what about profit, you know? And I, so it's sort of like, I read it and I was like, huh, that just stuck in the back of my mind for a long time. And well, I guess it's six years ago now because my oldest was five at the time we went to Disney World and, and there's a, you can meet like character, like there's places where you can kind of like photo ops where you can meet with characters and like, like take pictures with them and stuff. And so now I've got this five-year-old, it's like me and my wife and a five-year-old and, and we walk up to the the photo op station for Phineas and Ferb and and like my son's head exploded he was like he was like hyperventilating kind of he could he was just like blown away and in that moment I was like that's what Drucker meant because all the you know we've spent thousands you spend thousands of dollars on a Disney trip I spent thousands of dollars for that reaction, for that memory that he's going to have. I didn't spend it for the food and like the hotel room, all of that stuff, everything, every dime I spent was for that reaction. And if, and that reaction would never have been produced if Disney hadn't done all the marketing that led up to it. If he never saw the show Phineas and Ferb, which maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about, but it's a cartoon and he was really into it at the time. And they put in a lot of work and when we consumed all of the Phineas and Ferb cartoons for free and then but then when we went down there but that what that caused is me to feel like that was thousands of dollars well spent because his reaction and if Disney hadn't done all the cartoons like if we if there was no such thing as the TV show Phineas and Ferb and we just went to Disney World and there were these two bizarre looking costumes you know these people in these bizarre looking costumes it wouldn't have done he would have been like scared probably it would have been like but instead it was like he met a rock star and it created this reaction which a hundred percent returned all the investment that i made in that disney trip and that's when i understood what drucker meant he marketing is create if i was going to oversimplify it marketing is creating a desire and if you don't create that desire you, there's nothing to satisfy. So it kind of comes back to customer satisfaction in a way. So creating that desire 
is a hunger. It's like tension that you want to release or it's an itch that you want to scratch. And the bigger the itch, the better it feels when you scratch it. So Disney is amazing at creating a giant itch. And when you scratch it, it's the best. So I was like, oh, okay. So it's it's a higher look. Like Drucker's, Drucker's quote operates at, ex, at an extremely high level, the most ideal level for a business. There are lower levels that work where you address existing desires or you scratch existing itches. But if that was the most that businesses ever did, then like culture and civilization wouldn't move forward because we would just end up stuck. We'd end up stopping like, okay, we've satisfied all of the lower level Maslow's hierarchy of needs itches. You know what I mean? No one would ever create a new itch. So if you have, if you, so marketing creates that desire and then innovation is an extremely important component here. So you're not selling snake oil. Like you need to marketing without innovation is just selling snake oil and innovation without marketing is launching to crickets. Like no one cares. Like, yeah, wow, you patented some new process to create cruise photography. No one cares. So there's, cause no, no one knows it's crickets. So if you have marketing and innovation, which Disney does, which Apple does, which Tesla does, which SpaceX does, which Volkswagen does, Amazon does, goes on, Pfizer, it goes on and on and on. So companies that do a lot of marketing and innovation, they're creating a desire for something that's amazing. So something new, but you can't just have something new. There needs to be a desire for it as well. So at the highest level, this is why you have, this is why companies that are at the highest levels of profitability invest billions not millions but billions in marketing and innovation samsung's another one there's tons of them does that answer your question <laughs> absolutely thank you i, I love the such a, it's a great story because it's the simplicity of the drucker thing but then the disneyland and I, I love what you said about how it was like meeting a rock star but without marketing he would have been scared which is yeah. like almost the opposite. So instead of being like mind blown at how amazing it is, it's frozen by fear if there was no marketing, which I think right. maybe make, maybe for you know people who are following like a creative path, I think marketing is something that a lot of people struggle with. And so mm -hmm. I think that that story kind of encapsulates that difference of those two emotions really well. But I'm, and I love the, the kind of idea of like instigating an itch. It's a good way of thinking about it. Where have, where have you, so two part question is, where have you got stuck with marketing in the past when it comes mm -hmm. to your shift from consulting to an hourly into value-based and teaching and coaching? Where have you got stuck with it? And as a second part, where do you commonly see other people get stuck with maybe the instigating of the itch and the, the wrestling and wrangling with what we call marketing? Yeah. So um, I'll, ask, I'll answer the second question first. So the second question is like, where do people get stuck with marketing? And and that's the easy question. The easy question is that since you can't see good marketing, most people only see bad marketing and they don't want to be a bad marketer and they shouldn't want to be a bad marketer. Why would you want to be a bad marketer? But that's the only kind of marketing that you can notice. So when someone says marketing, they think of spammers and pushy salespeople, the used car salesmen, coercion, persuasion, hard selling, always be closing. They think of all, you know, like invasive ads, pop-ups everywhere. They think of all the bad marketing 
And so they're like, I don't want to do that. So they just throw the baby out with the bathwater and they're like, marketing is bad. So that's, that's, that's the answer to the second question that everybody gets stuck there. And especially I'm, I mostly do work with developers and designers and they are just like allergic to the word marketing. So where did I get stuck? So I, I was the same way. I was a developer and I only was aware of bad marketing because that's the only kind you can see. So when I uh, first went solo, I started my own business in, in January 1st, 2006. And I didn't have any plan to do any marketing, but I did plan to copy my boss from the previous business. And we, we're good friends to this day. He's a great guy, taught me a ton. And, and I could see... The, I had seen the gardening piece when I was there and the gardening piece for, for a horizontally, horizontally specialized firm or soloist, the gardening piece looks like this. You speak and you write. So I, you know, he would speak at, at the annual conference. He would write books. He wrote, you know, articles in the, the monthly trade journal, get a regular column. Before I left, he pulled me in to help him with the column. So I started to have a monthly thing. Then when I went solo, I got a book, a book offer. So like a publisher just randomly contacted me because I was in, I had been doing a little bit of blogging and I was also in the trade journal and I had a specific focus that not a lot of people were focused on, not, not a lot of other people were talking about. And so Pearson or Sam's, I can't remember. I think it's the same company now, but anyway, uh, a publisher reached out to me, say, Hey, would you want to write a book about this? I said, yeah, wrote the book. Cause I knew that that's what Chris did. And, you know, I would speak at the conference and I'd write the book and lo and behold, people, I got inbound leads. So like people would contact me and say, we need help with this thing. We need help with this thing. So I was doing marketing, but I wouldn't have categorized it that way. I would have just said, Oh, like I speak at the conference and I write, I wrote a book and I write for the the trade publication. So that was, and really at the most basic levels, you can do that. Like a, like if, if any freelancer had something worth saying, in other words, if, if, if any freelance, whatever you do, an organizer of a conference to share their perspective, it implies that there is a perspective. So like, so the freelancer has something to share with an audience. So, so assuming that you have something to share with an audience, that's good enough for a conference organizer to pick you to speak. And then you write probably a book, a uh, book is kind of the gold standard still, but it could be, you know, a really popular blog or, you know, a popular mailing list. I'm a fan of daily mailing lists. So if you're, if you're out there as a putting yourself out there, promoting a particular worldview or vision or purpose or contrarian point of view, and you're well known for that, or you become more and more famous than other people who are in, people who are in that, that sort of tidal pool of whatever it is that you do, the sort of small pond of whatever it is that you do, you're going to become a big fish in that small pond. And that's automatically going to attract people who align with this worldview that you're putting out there. That's marketing, right? But so like good marketing. Well, okay. So that's what I was doing. That was the, that was that piece of the question. And then where did I get, where did I ever get stuck? I got stuck once I had, we had our second 
kid. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to write another book. It's like, it's like running a marathon. I'm up all night writing the thing. And then I've got work to do during the day. And I, I actually had a deal for my fourth book with O'Reilly. It was my third book with O'Reilly. And I was, and I, I was just like, oh my God, I couldn't make myself write it. I was like, I'm not, it, it felt like chewing your food for too long. You know, just like, oh, I just want to spit this out. And I just, I gave I said, nah, forget it. I broke the contract, give your advance back. And so I stopped writing books in that space. I was basically becoming bored of that career path that I was on before I switched into coaching. And I was like, I, I can't write another book about this. And then the other thing was once, once we had the second child, I didn't want to travel around all the time anymore. Cause I was speaking at like a conference a month and, you know, I had 10 or 12 conferences a year. I was flying all over the place, like all over Tokyo was the farthest one, but it was a lot of traveling and I was doing some travel for client work as well. So I was like, ah, I'm just going to stop. I, I, like if I never saw the inside of another plane, I would have been happy. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to stop doing speaking gigs. So guess what? I stopped writing and stopped doing speaking gigs all of a sudden. Well, not all of a sudden, but like six months later, I'm like, huh, I haven't gotten any leads in a while. So it's just an illustration that I was copying my, my previous boss and I, it's some part of me knew that that was the gardening piece, but then it's like I rested on my, I thought like, okay, the garden will continue to produce tomatoes forever and ever. Amen. Cause I was really comfortable at that point around 2012, 2013. I was, you know, cause I was getting leads all the time for really big projects. I mean, I was working with like T-Mobile and Nokia and Staples and just the list goes on. It's Intel. I can't even remember them all. So I was like, oh, I didn't consciously think this, but I acted like I was set and that I didn't have to do the gardening anymore. And of course the garden died. So, you know, fortunately I had a bunch of advisor retainer clients that it didn't go to zero in terms of income, but it was, you know, it was not my favorite time period. And then I was like, oh, around that time, it was when I started into the next phase, when I started helping people uh, with their pricing and, you know, get, getting away from trading time for money. And then I built that business up. It's a different kind of business where I was much more conscious of what I was going to do to raise awareness in the, the, in the right pond so that I could fund the mission and keep coming back every day to do it more. So I love that you, you know, you boil it down to kind of those two elements of speaking and writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people struggle with that, you know, it's simple, but not easy. And I'm just curious, how did you overcome any discomfort you had around going out and doing that? Because it's too sick. We can, we can all speak and we can all write most likely. Everybody's listening to this can probably do both of those things. We, we, we right. do it from a very young age, but when we become adults and we're out, you know, doing our own thing, particularly. I think for a lot of people that can feel terrifying, overwhelming, you know, all, the, all those things. Can, can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how, whether yourself directly or people maybe you've worked with closely, where you've, you've seen people be able to overcome that and how they've overcome that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I basically, you know, with a performing arts background, speaking was like no problem. So I kind of cheated. <laughs> that's so that's that's a cheat. But I work with a lot of people who don't have a performing arts background. And 
there's a, a couple of ways to tackle it. So when I'm coaching someone, like in my coaching program, I'll find one, uh, call it a channel for them to do speaking and one channel for them to do writing. Or I'll, That's my goal to look for it. And especially now, but even before the pandemic, I think guesting on podcasts or having your own podcast is a really good bang for the buck alternative to speaking at conferences. Speaking at conferences is really powerful. You've got a captive audience, essentially. People are really engaged. They're really locked in. They've traveled. They, they've been thinking about this for months. It's a big deal. It's an event. And they're expecting big things and therefore they've got a big itch. So therefore I can scratch it and it's like, wow, that was great. But it's extremely costly. It's very time consuming. It doesn't scale at all. So doing something that's like a podcast, if it, a lot for a lot of people, it's podcasting because they feel like there's a safety net. They can, they can throw away the podcast if it's terrible. They can edit out the bad parts. So they are a little less paralyzed there's no real stage fright with a podcast because they're not live in general. You know, like by and large, it's not a live medium, but it's still the voice comes across. So like their voice is still going into somebody's ears and there's something about the voice that creates this intimacy and trust much more quickly than writing. You know, it's like you can tell immediately if you click with someone when you're listening to them talk. And it doesn't mean everyone's going to click with you. I probably turn off tons of people. I've probably angered half your listeners already talking about <laughs> like the value, value of music. But, but the people who, who are on board with that will be like, are, are going to be more on board than if they had read it. So if they read the transcript of this, it would have been a completely different thing. So I think podcasting, thinking through kind of like my roster of students, Lots of them have podcasts now. So in that is their own podcast and they also go on podcast tours and they guest on other people's shows. So that's a big one. I have a few people that are really natural on camera and, and they're like just real natural with that kind of off the cuff live stream kind of thing. So, you know, they'll do like a video first workflow where they, they, they do a video like that and it's more, or a webinar where there is a live audience and that, that, that makes it more vibrant. I'm that way too. I, I don't like recording just into a mic by myself or just into a camera by myself. There's something that, that focuses my like neocortex when I know someone's listening, even if I can't hear them or see them, when I know someone's listening, it like turns on my performer thing. And I, I just, I can just like plow through it. It makes it, I don't know. It makes it easier for me somehow. You know, it's kind of like practicing guitar in your bedroom after 40 years is like kind of has lost the luster and it, it you, you can't, you, I can't make myself practice guitar like in a room. There needs to be like people or what's the point, you know? So I'm the same way when it comes to speaking or, or doing video stuff, but plenty of people that I work with do a non-live format, which de-risks it enough for them to, yeah, to, to get out of their own way and just do the thing. So, and so speaking wise, I think that uh, that is the case with writing. It's a different kind of fear with writing. So with writing, you get imposter syndrome is, is more of a, you get imposter syndrome with podcasting too, but with, with writing, it's a more, 
it's a it's uh it's closer to the top of the fear so you don't have stage fright when you're writing but you might have imposter syndrome and mm. and to me that's a good thing like if you're doing it, that feeling of inadequacy like i'm not the most expert person in the world on this subject is good if you as long as you don't have an inferiority complex which paralyzes you feelings of inferiority which is an imposter syndrome are great because that's what's going to keep you striving to get better and if you're not feeling any kind of inferiority feelings of inferiority or imposter syndrome you're probably not doing anything interesting you're not pushing yourself you're resting on your laurels or you're treading water you should be i feel like you don't have to do something that scares you every day but you should be pushing yourself out of your comfort zone because staying in your comfort zone is not safe from a from a survival standpoint which is evolutionarily a new thing it used to be that staying in the crowd was the safe thing and and stepping away from the crowd was the dangerous thing but that's not the case anymore so if you're not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone if you're not feeling some imposter syndrome you're not taking any risks and if you don't take any risks you're not going to get any reward and you're probably not going to have any impact that's the other thing so usually imposter syndrome is the bigger deal with writing the and that leads to writer's block like i don't even i mean i don't even need to talk about writer's block writer's block is manufactured you're you can everyone can you don't get speaker's block and you know like seth godin says plumbers don't get plumbers, plumbers block. i was gonna just, say plumbers yeah. block yeah you just do your job <laughs> right the reason why people get writer's block is because they they don't want to write bad so just write bad it's fine write a better thing tomorrow you know that's why I, well okay so usually imposter syndrome is one of the big things with writing the other big thing is that they think i don't have enough to say and and usually they say that because i'm always trying to get people to start a daily mailing list daily daily not just writing practice but daily publishing practice and i especially like email for a bunch of reasons one of which is that you can't take it back and go edit it edit it edit it forever it's gone it's too late so you publish 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 and if you didn't like the one you published today write a better one tomorrow and and not keep trying to fix the one from today so the fear that people get when i talk about writing every single day is they're like either i won't have time for that or i'll run out of things to say and both of those things are easily fixable i can demonstrably false so those are the those are the big those are the big sort of obstacles or or that's the pushback i get for writing and the way to get over it is to just do it you know and the, your, your question was how do i do how do i help people deal with that issue with writing and that one it, i would just say hey take 15 minutes and write down 30 titles like 30 ideas atomic small not big sprawling articles but like like an idea that's an insight or interest is interesting to you and you could flesh it out in between 100 to 500 words real short one point and one takeaway one moral of the story just make one point and if in 15 minutes you can come up with 30 kind of like subject lines or titles that each are going to turn into roughly a 350 word article that makes one single point if you can do that in 15 minutes you you can do it you're you're good to go like you could start you just wrote 30 emails basically so you could queue that up 
you know, and if you did it weekly, that would almost last a year. If you did it daily, it'd be an entire month. So yeah, I mean, for people who do have, you know, a few years of experience, they do have something to say, the kind of stuff a conference organizer would pick to put on stage. They've got opinions. They're on a mission, something. They've got something. Then it's almost it's almost never hard for them to come up with 30 ideas. It's it's like, boom, sometimes it doesn't even take 10 minutes. They're just like, oh yeah, I've got a million ideas. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, all right, that's your list. Write the first three tonight and queue them up and write the next three the next day or whatever. Oh, I love that. There's loads in there. So a few things I heard were finding, I think finding and experimenting with channels that are maybe at the edge of your comfort zone. Maybe they're not completely outside it, but at the end, because there's, it sounds like, you know, for you, there's like a performative element. So you, you can pick, you know, that kind of something live with someone at the end of it probably brings out the best in you and you've got more comfort there or more, you know, more, you're more open to it. So I suppose for people who are wrangling with this, find something that's like at the edges of your comfort zone or aligns with maybe something else previously that you've done or that you do. You Can I make you, one, yeah, one, yeah, of pe- course. one clarification there? Sure. I wouldn't I wouldn't pick a medium that you're uncomfortable with. I would pick ideas that you're not uncomfortable with. So so I would I would pick a medium that's easy, the easiest one for you. So, you know what I mean? So I don't I don't want the medium to become a, the point of friction. So if it's if it's really hard for you to do video stuff, like I, I I've never really loved working in video. It's a lot to edit. It's like it's just, it's big files, a lot of processing time. It always feels slow and clunky to me. I never liked that. I always liked audio podcasts. It's easier for a million ways. So I picked the easiest speaking thing that I could. So I would pick the easiest, you know, there's like a dozen different ways you could speak into people's ears. It could, you know, vlogging, meetups, whatever conferences, just, but just pick one, pick the one that's the easiest for you and pick the writing thing. That's the easiest for you. But the, the place where you're going to push yourself is in the content, not the channel. If you see, do you see the distinction? That's absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a good clarification because the discomfort of a, of a medium like video, if you have big discomfort with it, it's going to make it even harder. Yeah. Don't, right? that's not right. And it's not going to make you better if like, like becoming uh, great on camera is probably not going to serve you very well. Probably your your bigger mission is probably not going to be served yeah. well by like forcing yourself to get good on camera when you could just get on mic and just do audio. So the couple of the other things that I I meant I thought of while you were talking was I wrote a fairly long piece earlier this week which I had you know some imposter syndrome around because I'm not the expert in that area. And I realized just as you were speaking before is like a 10 step guide to doing something. And I put a ton of notes and caveats at the top, like about seven of them. It's like, a hit. yeah, exactly. Which I mean, that if anything says, if anything don't says, read this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think I'm going to go and edit that and trim it to like, maybe I'll just key like one or two of them because it had like a load of, oh, if but I think it was my attempt to overcome objections, but it, but it probably went the other way. And so I over caveated it, which was a signal that, I was trying to cover myself and hide, hiding away a bit. So thank you yeah. for mentioning that. Sure. And keep in mind, like none of the ideas I talk about in like pricing, positioning, publishing, none of them are new. I mean, like some of the boring tactical stuff is new. Like you can live stream on YouTube and that didn't exist in the sixties, but, but the underlying fundamental principles haven't changed forever. Right. But, but people 
who are in my audience or in the audience that you, dear listener, are going to build at some point or already have, those those are like mothballed ideas that people don't know about. And they're not going to, you know, they're not going to get past the fire hose of information that is the internet and dig into some book from the sixties or even Peter Drucker from the seventies. So you, you, there's still a job to be done bringing these fundamental ideas into the, into the now, into the, into their future so that you can communicate them in a way that connects so you might not be, I might, I'm definitely not the world expert on pricing services, but I know how to communicate them in the, in a way that resonates with people who are struggling with it. Now, they're not going to go read Drucker. They're not going to go read, you know, Carnegie, but they can listen to me in their, you know, in their podcatcher explain basically the same stuff in new terms, or they could just skip over me and go to the source. It's kind of like, you know, I, I heard Ice Cream Man. I thought Van Halen wrote Ice Cream Man, but they didn't. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm doing covers basically. Uh, I'm so related to that. What you said about at like the kind of atomization, I suppose, of things, the like atomic stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, this is something that I've known for a while and haven't actioned for long enough. But I kind of think about the things I put out there as bits, almost like a stand-up would. And like a bit can be a five minute full thing, or it can be literally one line. Mm-hmm. And so I like to think in bits because if I can, if I'm struggling to turn it into a long thing, maybe it just can be like a two line observation about something. Maybe that's enough. Maybe mm-hmm. it can be turned into something else. Maybe not. And so I find like thinking that way and like, like atomically, like you said, just get like the one line version of it. That'll do for now, and then you can maybe build on it later rather than trying to, oh, I have to write 2,000 words for this because that's what the culture says. I think that's Mm -hmm. another trap people fall into. Yeah, yep. And so check it out. So like, there's a a really interesting dynamic at play with a two-line email, like a tweet-length email that you send or a blog post or whatever, which is that the time it takes to read it is very low. So it's very little, very, it's very little. So it's a low cost to the reader. So for you to deliver positive ROI, in other words, make them glad that they read it, the, the bar is very low, right? So the longer you write, the more you write, the higher the bar is for you to clear to make the reader glad that they read it because they're investing more of their most precious resource, their life minutes. <laughs> so if it takes an hour to read it, it better be great because they just spent an hour of their life reading your ideas. So if you, you can, you can make it, you can make your job easier by boiling it down for them into something that only takes 30 seconds to read. Most of my emails are under 300 words, but I write every single day. And every time I sit down to write before I press send, I ask myself, are the people on my list going to be glad they read this? And the shorter it is, the easier it is for me to say yes. You've mentioned a couple of times you have a daily email list. Like, why mm-hmm. show up every day? Like, so I think so it's to easier. Me, it's, so, so, so please say more. Say more. Why? Why is it easier? So I used to. So for periods of time, I I, I blogged at certain through certain periods. It was always really sporadic. You know, almost every post would start with "Geez, haven't posted in three months." You know, like an apology, and the. And the, the, the subject matter was very scattered. It was like a flea market of anything that had my interest. And like, for some reason I was inspired to write it. 
And then you, if you ever looked at my old blog when I was doing, when I was like a solo developer, it was like, it was just like a yard sale of, of topics that were of, you know, the, the theme of the whole thing was like stuff that caught Jonathan's interest today. So nobody read it. I mean, it was like, it was basically pointless other than for the, 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 me kind of capturing an idea that I didn't want to forget, you know, so it was that kind of blogging where it's like, oh, I noticed something and I, I'm probably going to, you know, need to know this again later and I'm probably going to forget it. And sure enough, there were times when I would Google for something and my own blog post would come back and I'd be like, oh yeah, I dealt with the user agent string on Windows Phone 7 last year, you know, something like that. So it was terrible. Then, but I had the, I had a blog, like I had the mechanics of it set up. So then when I got into, when I started getting pulled into helping people ditch hourly billing and how do I do value pricing and how does it, how do, you know, my colleagues ask me how to make it work. I went to a, a meetup in Boston near where I live and I gave a presentation to the group and it was like they kind they got, it was a short presentation though. And they were like excited by it, but, and they got the idea but it was unclear how to implement it. And so I, I, I think I explicitly said to them, I'm like, I'm going to start blogging about this weekly. So you guys, so I can keep following up. So if you have questions, let me know. I can't remember if I did it in person or, if, or if I just thought, geez, I should really blog about this weekly for this group. And, and I had this weekly schedule because that's a blog. It's a weekly blog, right? Like there, it's pretty common for it to be weekly. Podcasts tend to be weekly. So I was like, great. Uh, every Monday for until I run out of topics, I'm going to post another topic on this sub post another make another post on this subject. And oh, man, every Sunday night, it was like every Sunday night, I was about to go to bed and be like, Oh, I forgot to write the blog post, but I had made a public commitment to do it. And it was, it was torture, torture wicked bad writer's block because it had to be like because I, I was trying to write longer pieces because there was a week in between them so they were more like 700 800 a thousand words and it was like late on a sunday night no ideas just like the first half hour was just like typing delete it typing delete it was torture it was so hard and i hear that from people who are in one of those two phases where they sporadically blog when they feel like it or they do a weekly blog and they they dread it it's like they dread it all week instead of looking forward to it all week. They get there. They don't know what to write. Writer's block. That's where all this stuff comes from. So when I switched, so I had a friend, Philip Morgan, who was, who was doing a daily email list. And I've been on Seth Godin's daily email list for a long time. And, and I was like, I love the effect that these mailing lists have on me. But the idea of doing, so in other words, I feel like I, as a, as a publisher, I feel like I could have a really positive effect using a daily method because I know what it does to me and how completely different it's game-changingly different from like a weekly mailing list or a weekly blog that I'm reading, you know? So Philip dragged me kicking and screaming into doing daily. And he was like, you got to do it, dude. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. You've got plenty of material. Don't worry about it. You're not going to run out. In fact, you're going to burn off all the boring material, all the top level shallow stuff in the first 30 days. And then you're going to start to go deep and it's just going to get more and more interesting. And the stuff you come up with is going to be dramatically different than anything else out there because almost nobody is thinking that hard about this right now. So I was like, okay, okay, okay. So he really held my hand. He dragged me into it. And almost immediately I've noticed that it was much easier than weekly. 
which makes no sense because I realize it's seven times more work, but there's all of the resistance disappears. All of Stephen Pressfield's resistance disappears and you, and it feels more like what I imagine a newspaper journalist feels like, where it's like, look, I got a five o'clock deadline. I'm just writing something. And, and like I was saying before, since it's email, if I fail in my, or if I feel like I failed in my promise to make the reader glad they spent the time to read the message, then the next day I try harder and I try harder and I try harder to deliver that positive ROI. And you get better at, you exercise this muscle of being able to boil things down into something that is the, the core insight or the core moral of the story and just blasting it out, just like, boom. So now it takes me, I mean, sometimes I, I could write an email on, on the couch in front of the fire on my phone in no time. And just, but the, because I, my, the muscle of daily publishing and like knowing what to write about is always, it never goes away. So as I go through my day that I've got this like metal detector for ideas that's always going and it just collects them. So I never don't have an idea. And even if a day comes that I don't have an idea from that day, I've got a list of ideas, like four or 500 ideas that I haven't had time to write yet because they start to accumulate faster. There's something weird about it. Something switches in your brain. When you switch to daily, you start to see ideas absolutely everywhere. And you're like, oh, that would be a great point to make. That would be a great point to make. That would be a great point to make. I already sent today's email, so I'll capture that in my drafts folder. And then the drafts folder starts to fill up. It's unbelievable. So I know it's counterintuitive, but I've had, I've got multiple students who have made the leap to daily publishing emails and they all say the same thing. Best thing I ever did for my business, bar none. And, and they love it. It's like their favorite part of their job. And guess what? It's marketing. You don't necessarily need to think of it like marketing. If you're just, you know, disgusted by that term. If you don't want to think of it as marketing, think of it as helping people at scale for free. And in the process, your thought leadership and the depth of your understanding of the subject matter and how to communicate it to people who are not experts goes through the roof. It's the best. If you just did one thing for your business, I would say start a daily mailing list. That, that's the one thing. If you did that, I can almost promise you that you'll attract more leads and get invited to speak at conferences and all the other things. I feel like you're, you're speaking directly to me as well as the listeners because <laughs> I, so I have a monthly newsletter. I do once a month. It's, it's like a 700, 800 word bit from me plus links and stuff. It's hard. Like it, it's hard. It takes me a long time to write, but I enjoy it, but it takes a long time to write. I thought about going weekly and the idea of going weekly terrified me because that just felt i think similar to you yeah okay if it's like a five to seven hundred word thing that feels really hard and actually going back to what we just said about you know atomizing things actually the daily i can totally see that with building the muscle actually counterintuitively becomes easier arguably than having to like pull a 700 word weekly thing out every week and the cadence is different and the kind of way that you're thinking about it is different so I think that's really interesting. You've, you've inspired me. Cool. Great. I hope, I hope people listening, try it. It's like, do, do what I said, take 15 minutes. If you can write down 30 atomic ideas that you could write 300 words about, do it. You're done. You're all, and it'll just goes from there. So 
I'm mindful of time. Just got, I want to just a few sort of quickies before we wrap up. It's been, we've covered a lot of stuff. This has been great. Firstly, is you, you strike me as very poised and focused. And I'm curious where you're unfocused or maybe less poised. You know, where, where, where do you find your, when your focus wanders? You know, where, what, and also, what do you do to bring it back hmm. when you are, when you do have moments where you're not so focused? I don't feel focused, so I don't know how to answer that. So what I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about what my actual, do you mean like my routine or? I wasn't specifically going to the routine, but if that if that's what comes to mind, please, please feel free to share yeah. it. So I, some people are the type that can, that, that can put appointments in their calendar with themselves and stick to them. Like, like uh, tomorrow I'm going to write my daily, every day I'm going to write my daily post at 9am or something like that. And they're, they're like, they adhere to that skip. Like my personal trainer's like that. He's like a machine every day, same thing, same time, you know, with, with weekly variations. Whoops. And I am not like that at all, but I know I have a different kind of organization that keeps me moving forward, even though my schedule is very much in flux every day. Cause like I work from home, we homeschool our kids. So we're all just sort of always in this, there's always something different happening. There's always some different mood going through. And I like to be able to just stop what I'm doing and like deal with is, you know, like, like play clue with the kids or whatever. So my schedule is very much in flux, but I wouldn't, but so if I didn't have some kind of structure, I would never get anything done. So what works for me is streaks. So I have a, a to-do list with about 15 things on it that recurs every day. So like every, every in the morning, it's 15 things. And throughout the day, I, I check them all out. Like I do them all. And then the next day they all come back. So I don't do them at any particular time. But once I get into a streak of, you know, like, you know, 300 days in a row of, of fasting from 1030 to 1030, I don't want to break the streak. So I, so at, at a certain point, the, if you want to call it the journey or the process is self-fulfilling because it's like, Ooh, I don't want to, I don't want to have a, you know, like if I have a, a day where I miss that could turn into like lots of days that I miss. So it's really important that I don't miss a day. And one of the things on the list is write my daily email. Sometimes I write it at midnight. Sometimes I write it after midnight and I end up sending two technically on the same date. So like send one at two in the morning and then one at two in the afternoon, but I check those things off like every day. I almost never miss one. And if I do miss one, I make like, it's my top priority the next day to do that thing. So I don't have two misses in a row, which is a technique I first heard about from James Clear, who has a book called Atomic Habits. And he, it's a, it's, it's great. It works great for me, but I know from, from working with coaching students, there's kind of two different sorts of people. There's the kind of people who have that more in flux kind of schedule like me and they're not great at keeping appointments with themselves and there's other people who who thrive in a more structured time sense so it's kind of like one or the other of those things i think will work for you and then also when, when you said focus the other thing that came to mind was the mission so having having a mission rid the world of hourly billing that's my mission having that mission plus a daily practice. I don't want to call it a routine because the, the times change every day, but having a daily practice with a mission, I think might 
make people might make me appear focused on the outside it doesn't feel focused though it feels kind of scattered honestly but i guess there's a maybe not a duality but they're the two the two things kind of help each other right when you loot when you sort of fall out of one you can go back to the other so if you fall out right. of sync so on one you horizon. can go and, yeah exactly yeah there's a kind of way to level yourself i like that a lot mm -hmm. So we've, we've been going for a bit. I want to make sure I free up the rest of your, your afternoon. We've covered so much. Is there anything else on your mind? Any advice, comments, questions, complaints, anything at all that you want to share before we, we start to close up? I mean, it's sort of to reiterate or kind of boil down some of the things we talked about. It's, I mean, if you are working for yourself, you are not a dancer or uh, an illustrator or a coder you're a business person and you're running a if you want your business to succeed uh, or grow even you need to develop the your skills at the craft of business it's the same way you develop your skills in the craft of coding or illustrating or dancing so you you switched you might not have realized it but you did so you need to do things if you want to s s be adorable business, like an ongoing concern and maybe even grow, you want to get those skills covered. Either you learn them or get someone to do them for you, but you can't not do them. It's you're never going to go anywhere. You're going to be trapped, especially if you're trading time for money, you're going to be trapped. You might as well get a job. So, I guess that's that's the big thing is to like recognize that if you work for yourself, you have a business, whether you think of it that way or not. And then that's the main thing. And then getting away from trading time for money is crucial, crucial to any kind of like financial freedom or or even like a good lifestyle. Because if you're if you're trading time for money, there's no way to optimize it. If somebody buys an hour, it takes an hour to deliver it. So you can't opt. There's no way to create leverage and, and leverage is profit. So you can't make a profit. So anyway, it's, it's a trap, but it's, it's sort of like this consensual hallucination that people are like, oh, the only way to pay for services like illustration or dance or blah, whatever. The only way to do it is by the hour. It's the only fair way. And it's my mission to make people realize that they're absolutely deluded if they think that. In line with that mission, where can people find you online, Jonathan? Where, where, where are the best places to check out you and what you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I would recommend getting on my mailing list. I read, you know, reply to any message. It goes straight to my personal inbox. I read all the messages. I get back to everybody one way or another, either with a group message or a personal message. So I would just go to, if you're interested in the idea of value pricing specifically, you can go to valuepricingbootcamp.com and that'll redirect you to my site and you can just sign up for that. It's like a six-day email course that goes into these value concepts in more detail. And like I said, reply to any message and I'll get, I'll get your message. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. I've got, I've got some daily blogging to do daily emails to write. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I hope you do. Let me know. I'll, I'll subscribe. Hey, it's Howard again. Thanks for listening. Just wanted to let you know that you can access every episode of Under the Current along with full show notes, links, and other resources 
at underthecurrentpodcast.com and also on our YouTube channel. Under the Current is produced by Wavetable. Learn more at wavetable.net. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.